This is a uh, weekend of celebration for us as a church family, as our associate pastor David Salyer married Sarah Herbeck, and uh, this yesterday we celebrated uh, that union, and we look forward to seeing God work in their lives and through their families here. So uh, if you fall asleep here this morning, you have a free pass today, okay? We're looking at the book of 2 Kings, and we'll be in chapter 4 this morning. The passage that was just read for us will be portions of what we'll be walking through today. Uh, Elisha is the the prophet who we'll be working with today. His name translates this. It says, God is salvation. That's what Elisha means. Elisha enters into a land of death in order to conquer evil and bring life. He enters a land that was once flowing with milk and honey, but we see in these passages that it it now lies barren. And instead of life-giving fruit, there's poisonous thorns and thistles. There's famine of righteousness as well as of bread. Elisha has entered the land as a new Joshua. We saw this in chapters 2 and 3. He's conquering. He's cleansing the land. He's destroying God's enemies. But by the end of chapter 3, we are left with an unfinished conquest. Like Joshua before, the conquest is not complete. The land is now marked with famine and idolatry, a lack of oil and of bread, filled with miscarriage and death. Sorry about that. What is Elisha doing? What can he possibly do? And where is God in the midst of all of this famine and death? Well, there's hope in this passage, and it is this, Elisha which is God's salvation, enters the lives of God's people who dwell in the land of death in order to bring life. And therein lies our hope as well, for we follow a different Elisha who also dwells with us in the land of death. But having conquered death, he promises us life and life to the full. So that's where we're going this morning, life in the land of death. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which is living and active, and we ask you to draw near to us with your spirit, open our ears and soften our hearts, and apply to our lives your living word, that we might be conformed more into the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Elisha, or uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, we see Elisha enters a land of death in order to bring life. In this passage, if we were to look at the whole chapter, we have five miracles, And in some ways, they encompass the life and ministry of Elisha. What's happening is God is forming a remnant community, a new church in the land, a holy church in the land, not of milk and honey, but a land of death. And this community is to bring life. So here's, if we can step back and see kind of a big picture approach to this portion of Scripture, what we see a big picture is that this, God is creating a new people for His purposes. There's a remnant church being formed. Faithful, those who remain faithful are now beginning to saturate the land of death as a gift of life. And in this big picture, we see one. The picture of these portions here, it's a picture of the church. It's an imagery of a people groaning with fallen creation who are being made new to redeem the world. That's one. This portion is a picture of the church. Secondly, we see Elisha points the way to Jesus, who echoes these very miracles to create a new people, his body, the church. And that church is then sent out to bring life 
to a world of death. Elisha points us to Jesus, and these passages point us to who we are and our work as the church. So today we have five miracles of Elisha. We're going to try and touch on all five of them to see the big picture of this story. So the, the five miracles, if you have, think of the bookends of the, the chapter, what we have at the beginning and end of this chapter is famine with resurrection life promised. So we're going to be flipping back and forth a little bit, but look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And the end of the chapter now, the other bookend, verse 42 so it reads this, a man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread for, of the first fruits. 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Beginning and end of this chapter, we see there's a lack. There's a shortage. There is famine in the land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. We also see that God has preserved in this land a remnant of faithful people. At the beginning here, we have a remnant of faithful prophets in the land, but these prophets, though faithful, are not safeguarded from the infiltration of death. Our chapter opens with a, prophet, a prophet's widow who is deep in debt. A creditor comes and offers enslavement of her children in order to pay off that debt. There is famine in the land. What was the land of blessing and freedom has become another Egypt for the Israelites. A famine of food and faithful worship, a place where idolatry runs wild. And as the psalmist sings, those who make idols, they become like those idols, as Israel's leaders are deaf, dumb, and blind. Idols promise freedom, but they only deliver slavery in the same way that the creditor comes to collect on his debt by enslaving the children of Israel. The chapter here ends in famine as well. Bread has become scarce in the land. There's 20 small loaves and some grain to feed 100 men. And we think of loaves, we think big loaves. These are little, little loaves of, of barley. And it's, it's not much. And it's, it's acknowledged that this is not enough to feed all of these here. Does it remind you of other miracles that we read of in the New Testament? Other multiplication of loaves or of fishes feeding thousands upon thousands. God's prophet enters into this land of famine to bring life and to bring fruit because the chapter not only begins and ends with famine, it begins and ends with miraculous provision. Chapter 4, verse 3 reads this way, And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know... Oh, that's too far, sorry. Verse 3, then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Verse 6, when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. He said, go sell the oil, pay your debts so you and your sons can live on the rest. At the end of the chapter, verse 43, the second half. 
So Elisha repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. Verse 44, So he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. Where famine is, now there is overabundance because of God's grace. As with Elijah, before Elisha, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, oil is provided in miraculous ways. As many jars as they could collect, they were filled from this one jar, jar after jar after jar, until there were no jars remaining and the debts were paid off, the family supported. Likewise, 20 small loaves fed a lot of men. Much was left over. It's like when Naomi left Bethlehem, the house of bread. There was famine. There was hunger in the house of bread. No bread was to be found. And though she went away empty, she returned with overabundance with Ruth and her redeemer Boaz providing for her sustenance. The chapter from beginning to end takes place in a land of famine. The people who live there are groaning with destruction. There's death instead of milk and honey. But God, through His prophet, brings life, brings bread, brings oil to sustain His remnant people, His remnant church. And there's a bit of a change from Elijah to Elisha, these prophets. Elijah worked primarily with the kings on the national level. But what do we see Elisha doing? He goes to an unnamed widowed prophetess, right? Not even a name given to her in a small place, and he works behind the scenes. At the end, he, an unnamed baker and an unnamed men, and Elisha begins to work amongst here and that with them. So there's an instruction for us here, I think, in the ministry of Elisha that, yes, we pray for our nation. We pray on a large scale for big things to change, for revival in our country. But we also then work and pray in the small places amongst the small people. God is renewing the land in Israel through Elisha's work in the small people in the small places. As the church of Christ, we are sent out into our local places to be the hands and feet of Jesus among small people in small places to redeem the world. That's how he works through Elisha, and that's how he works through the church. We pray big things, and we work small ways in local context. Those are the bookends. If we go inward in our passage a little bit, we have a second miracle and a fourth miracle. And these highlight the fact that in this land there is barrenness and there is poison. Verse 8 of chapter 4, one day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there and eat food. Elisha's no idiot. If she's going to cook, I'm going to stop by. Verse 11, one day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there and said to his servant Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him. He said to him, and, she, and he said to him, the servant, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people, small people, small places. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi says, well, she has no son and her husband is old. This is a land of barrenness. Verse 38, Elisha came to Gilgal. When there was famine in the land, and as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, sit on the large pot, uh, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. 
One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it in his lap of a wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. There's barrenness in the land. This nameless Shunammite widow finds place in a long history, a long line of faithful women whose wombs were barren from Abram and Sarah to Jacob and Rachel to Hannah, whose son was Samuel, and of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. The womb was empty, and the womb of these women mirrored the, the, the land, which was also barren. The land of milk and honey remains a famished land of barrenness and death. And so Elisha enters in, God's way of salvation. There's not only barrenness, though. We saw in this fourth miracle that there's poison. Elisha is like this traveling preacher of sorts. And he goes to Gilgal, which he'd been to other times previously. And in Gilgal, we see a land saturated with thorns, with thistles, that poison and kill. This must have been long before Martha Stewart could correctly give them advice. Or the Boy Scouts could certainly say, that's a bad mushroom. They didn't exist at that point. And so this poor prophet going out to feed the masses, some gourd is filled with toxins. The amateur cook whips up a pot of death. What grows of its own accord in this land produces only poison and death. The famine in the land only produces death. The land takes on the character of its people. People who are made of the earth, who are then cursed in sin, live in a land that is cursed, barren, and full of death. But in the wilderness, there is a table set for God's people. Verse 9 and following. This is back to the Shunammite widow or woman. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. In the wilderness, God establishes an upper room, a holy sanctuary. So remember where we're at now. We are in the northern kingdom of Israel. There's no temple in the northern kingdom. All that they set up is altars to golden calves there. There's no temple or tabernacle of God's ordaining. But look at what this room is. It's an upper room established for the worship of God and the dwelling of His Word. It's an upper room. One has to ascend to get there. And it's got simple furnishings, right? What does she furnish it with? A bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. These are temple furnishings. The bed is as the altar of living sacrifice. The table, which houses the showbread, which represent the people of God. And then, of course, there's the lamp. It's got the, 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 the lampstand of, of the living God, a light into the darkness. And then the chair is but like the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant upon which God would come and descend. The image that we're supposed to have from these two verses is that God is setting up a holy place, an upper room, a temple in the land of death. 
And it's such a small, out-of-the-way place. Shunem. No longer addressing king and nation, the temple of God is set in the midst of God's faithful remnant. She says, I'm with my own people here. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall enter into his holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The prophet of God ascends to worship in the upper room. Through the faithful remnant, God is bringing life in the midst of the land of death. But not only that, in those miracles, in second and fourth miracle, we see that there's layers of freedom and life as well. Look at verse 16 and 17. Here's what Elisha says when he finds out she's barren. At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said to him, No, my Lord, O man man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And then verse 41, Elisha said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. In this earlier miracle, we have a miraculous son born. A firstborn child that was promised is now delivered. And in the last one, we have Elisha cleansing the, as he cleansed the waters of Jericho, healing the waters so that there would be no miscarriage and death. So he cleanses the fruit of the land so that there is no longer poison in the stew, but there is now life. Elisha is working amongst a remnant faithful who have not bowed knee to false gods. And, and through these faithful, God is building his kingdom in the land of death. He is bringing freedom and life, which are promised and delivered through faithful worship of God's people in the house of God. But yet, where do we find the people? Where are they dwelling? They're still dwelling in the land of death. From famine at the beginning, we see barrenness, we see poison, and now we see death. Verse 18, back to the Shunammite woman and her son. When the child had grown, he, he had went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. While in the house, the sanctuary of God, life was given to the son. The moment he goes out into the land, his head is wounded and he dies. From the nurture of home and loving mother, the child goes out of sanctuary into the land. He is wounded, given mortal sickness, and he dies. Verse 21, and she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out She called to her husband, said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. So she sent out, verse 25, set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Remember the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. I mean, this woman's been given this child and now the child dies. Where, where, Where can she turn in this land of death? To whom shall she go? She ascends the upper room with clean hands and a pure heart to lay her son on the bed altar of the prophet. Whereas Isaac was spared on the mountain, this son was slain in the land of death. But she is not deterred 
Rather, she goes to another upper room, a Mount Carmel, to find Elisha. It's that same mountain where Elijah defeated Jezebel and her prophets, Baal. So at this mountain, there is promise of victory, victory even over death. There is hope, there is promise of resurrection, life. If we look at the second half of verse 25, when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with you, your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I not, or did I ask for uh, my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Again, remember the disciples trying to protect Jesus' time and energy, and they keep the children away, the needy ones away from Jesus? You've got a similar thing going on with Gehazi here as well. But God's Word invites her in, and her posture reveals her heart as she bows before Him. Verse 29 and following, He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead, laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child is not awakened. It's been hidden from Elisha until now, and it's revealed that the son has died. And so he commands his servant to, to run straight as you can to the, to the, the woman's house, to, the, to the, chi- the, the child's side. Don't greet anybody. Don't turn to the right or to the left, but go and lay my staff upon the, the child. And in the same way that the disciples could not cast out a demon, so Elisha's servant cannot raise the son from the dead. But we see again God working behind closed doors, verse 34. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth. This is Elisha. His eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself on the child. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes, and then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. When she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. I don't know what to do with all the details of Elisha laying on the boy, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. I don't know why he sneezes, the boy sneezes seven times. His body's warm. There's life returning. The breath of God has entered this lifeless skin and bones. The child is raised to life in God's upper room. In the sanctuary, God breathes word, breathes life, spirit life into the lifeless child. Resurrection life is promised and given in God's sanctuary, His house, through His word. So big picture, we have a Shunammite woman as well as a prophet's widow. We have a deadly chef and a breadless hundred. And life was given to the faithful who lived in the land of death. There is a common thread throughout this chapter of hardships experienced by God's faithful. 
These are life-threatening hardships as well. A common threat of having lived decades amongst a corrupt kings and corrupt people and priests. The people continued to worship false gods before whom these faithful refused to bow their knee. The lives of this remnant church were saturated with pain and frustration, disappointment, and sorrow as they lived amongst the land of death. And I think the climax here of this whole section amongst all these verses and the image I want us to to be left with, to depart with, is verse 37, when we see the response of the widow to the word of God spoken. She came, fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. She fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The reality for us is in a lot of ways, we as the church resemble the life and work of Elisha. We can't deny in many ways we live in a land of death. In all of its beauty, in all of its glory and grandeur, all of creation groans with eager longing for the Lord to restore all things. We, God's people, groan with eager expectation as well. To live otherwise is to deny the reality of sin and evil in our world. We, too, live and dwell in a land of death. But we have a true and a better Elisha. We have one who goes before us, who cleanses God's house, who cleanses God's land, who offers himself as the bread of life, which has no end and nourishes to the full. We have one from whom the oil of the Holy Spirit pours out an endless measure upon his people. Jesus is indeed God's final Elisha. For this Elisha, Jesus has conquered death itself and the grave in his own death and in his own burial and his own resurrection. So that when he raises Tabitha, when he raises Lazarus, these are but foretastes, these are but promises. Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection life, which means that He is the promise that all who die in Him will indeed be raised from the dead to reign with Him on high. The reality is, dwelling in the land of death, God can give a son miraculously, and He can take a son. In the land of death, we look not to horses or chariots, We look not to government or to ease of circumstances. Rather, we look to our head, who is Jesus Christ, for we are his body. And in this land of death, we are his hands and his feet. And daily, daily we fall at his feet, bowing in worship to our king, to our prophet, to our great high priest, who not only pleads on our behalf, but he gives himself that we might taste life in this land of death. Praise be to His name now and forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that You give us Your Son, Jesus, who is the living water, who cleanses, who conquers our enemies. And though our enemies still rage and though sin still ravishes, we trust that You are victorious. We, Your servants, rest in that victory longing to serve you in faithfulness, in honor, and in glory. To your name be praised forevermore. Amen.